I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to read the 13 verses that comprise this chapter. We're told that in the year that King Uzziah died, he reigned for about 52 years in Israel. And now in the year that he died, the true king appeared to Isaiah in vision. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's something of a palace vision, throne of God, but yet a temple. And the Holy of Holies really works to be conceived of as the throne room of God in the temple. So the idea of temple and palace or kingdom and uh, uh, approach to God and worship, uh, though they were divided between the priests and the kings in Israel, they're united in Jesus and they're united in God. It's one picture of one God upon a throne in a temple as well as in a palatial palace as ruler and sovereign over all. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. It's a word that speaks of some sort of an angelic creature. It means a burning one. So there were these burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And and one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy and blind, their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak. Again, the picture of trees again coming before us, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump, or the holy seed is in the stump. There's a relationship between that stump that remains and this holy seed that formed the basis of the new people of God. Now, when I ended my studies and began to visit churches many, many years ago now, when I did pulpit supply, when I explored ministry opportunities, what I did was I put together a series of sermons that I got a great deal of experience preaching at various places. My poor wife who came with me had to hear probably the same message over and over and over again. Some pastors' wives enjoy hearing their husbands preach sermons over and over and over again. Um, my wife seems to be non-committal when I raise the issue and I don't really want to know what her really th- real thoughts were. Are, because there's a sense of which something I preached long ago and even I preached last week out in Greentown I'm bringing it to you here this morning. 
Because one of those cyclical sermons that I would rehash and uh, bring out again and again and again were sermons based on Isaiah 6. And I usually had two, two, two of these messages, one for the morning service, one for the evening service. And the morning service was the call of Isaiah, and the evening service was the commission of Isaiah. If I had just one shot at it, I'd bring it together, the call and commission of Isaiah. But you can see from our bulletin this morning, I'm not preaching on the call and commission of Isaiah. The title is very different. Instead of being focusing in upon Isaiah, his experience or his call, really it's upon the vision he saw. That's my focus this morning. It's the one enthroned in majesty and in glory. Because that's really what this passage is about. John seemed to understand this when he quotes from this in uh, John chapter 12. And having quoted from it, he says in John 12 verse 40, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? Well, in the passage in John 4, uh, John 12 40, it's Jesus he saw. Jesus saw the glory of Jesus. I'm sorry, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. Isaiah didn't see Jesus in some pre-incarnate state. He saw him incarnate in his humanity and glorified, crucified, buried, risen, ascended. It's the glory of Jesus, the glory that John in his gospel speaks of when he brings together the events of the cross, the open tomb, and the throne of heaven. Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension It's in all those acts we see the glory of God revealed and the saving acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells us that's what what Isaiah saw. He saw God incarnate. He saw God glorified in a true humanity at the right hand of, uh, I'm sorry, upon a throne in majesty. Again, the right hand of the glory of God is the place in which Hebrews tells us he's enthroned, but again, you don't really see the God who's invisible. You see the Jesus who's visible, embodied, reigning, ruling in the universe of God. That's the picture of the vision of Isaiah. And the other thing to say about why it's important to, stu- to focus upon the vision and not the man Isaiah himself is that, think of this now, five chapters of prophecy have proceeded. In the other prophetic books that describe the call of the prophet, the account is at the beginning, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 1. They didn't wait till later on to describe their call. They brought their authority to bear as prophets of God right up front and said at the opening, uh, the opening of each book that uh, they were called to this ministry. And usually when they're called to this ministry, they're reticent about uh, doing it. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were very reticent. I'm a mere youth. Um, of course, Moses was reticent. He's not a man who could speak well, he claimed. Gideon was also called to the... Uh, also sought to say, get somebody else. <laughs> Bypass me. And here in this passage, this man's saying, here I am! Send me! Very different than the other prophetic calls. And a real sense in which I think we need to see that Isaiah 6 is not so much chronological, but theological. It's placed in this place 
in Isaiah chapter 6 because the content of it, it looks back at chapters 1 to 5 and we'll see that as we go through. It's looking back to content already there and it looks forward to things already to come in chapter 7 to chapter 12. And so Isaiah 6 is in the central place of the opening section of Isaiah from chapter 1 to chapter 12 where the God of Israel whose works are works of judgment because of a sinful, disobedient people. And yet in the midst of the judgment he speaks about, he says as well that he is a gracious God who will reveal his mercy to the nation in their recovery. Well, what do we have here? Well, we have the representative of that community under judgment. That community in their sin. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. But he doesn't end there. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm part of that community under judgment. And you might ask, well, what hope is there for that community under judgment if God is simply, as he says in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, he's going to take that vineyard and he's going to plow it under. There's going to be destruction that's going to come to the covenant people. And yet, is there hope to be found? Well, in a lot of places in Isaiah we find there is a hope. There is a hope of God bringing about a new creation, a new people, a restoration, a work of grace to a people that are deserving of utter destruction. And yet out of that will come something wondrous. And so you see this passage about Isaiah and his experience as really being something of a paradigm, something of an example of what God is able to do. Remember if you learned a foreign language, you're usually given a paradigm of the different uh, noun forms, and those are the conjugations, but I think it's the verbal form. I forgot, one's a declension and one's a conjugation, but they're all paradigms. They're all examples of how the, how the language works. When you see a verb in a normal verb, it's going to go in the same form of, uh, of what you see in the paradigm. And so Isaiah is the case in point. He's the example. So if God can do to Isaiah what he does for Isaiah, that is forgiving him, cleansing him, commissioning him, sending him, is God not then able also to do it to every single member of the nation? I think that's the point of it. And so it fits in with the theology of the book, which is why it's here in chapter 6 and not chapter 1. But what is it that Isaiah sees? He has this throne room vision. I want to say he sees God in three aspects. Number one, he sees divine majesty. This is a revelation of divine majesty, the majesty of the living God. The second place he sees the revelation of divine mercy, that God is a merciful God. Later on in the book, he's going to speak about how judgment is his strange work. It's a strange work. It's a work that's alien to him. He's going to judge the nation for their sins. They're going to judge a nation because their sins deserve that judgment that he will bring. It's a just judgment that he brings, but yet it's never pleasurable for the Lord. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's a strange work. Mercy is his delight. Mercy is always God's delight. So we have divine majesty. We have divine mercy. And finally, we have the divine mission that Isaiah is sent to perform. And it's kind of unlike many of the things we think missions ought to be like. But it's God's mission. And God has the right to set the terms of the mission. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Divine majesty, divine mercy, and divine mission. First of all, divine majesty. 
Again, this is not the first mention of majesty in the book. Chapter 2 echoes the description. Uh, We find when we read such things as the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. We read about the splendor of God's majesty in chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 21. Also in chapter 5 and verse 16, the Lord of hosts is exalted in judgment. Exaltation is clearly a property that belongs to the living God. But here in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees the Lord exalted upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now the language of high and lifted up is interesting because it's three times Isaiah uses the language high and lifted up. He uses it here in chapter 6 to describe the exaltation and majesty of this God whom he sees in vision. But then it's also used in the beginning of the final one of the servant songs. Remember in Isaiah he has these four servant songs in which the servant is set forth as the agent through whom God will work for the deliverance of his people. And the most familiar of the servant songs is chapter 53. That's the one that says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his, our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But you know what? Right at the beginning of that servant song, when we think that the main point of the servant song is the sufferings of the servant, Isaiah is talking about the sufferings of the servant right at the beginning. We read these words in chapter 52 and verse 13. Why it gets divided up from 52-13 into chapter 53, I don't know. It's a bad point of dividing the chapter. This belongs to Isaiah 53. Because the servant song begins upon this note. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And he shall be exalted. The servant succeeds. What the servant comes to do, he succeeds. And the point of the pinnacle of his success is his exaltation. He's high and he is lifted up. He will do the work of God well. He'll do it wisely. He'll carry on the the mediatorial kingdom of God in a way that will bring glory to honor to the name of God and bring maximum blessing to the sons of the earth. That's the picture. Jesus, the exalted one, high and lifted up. And then we see in chapter 57... At another point of the book, that the language of high and lifted up is used again. And here it's used to describe the fact that not only is God in Christ high and lifted up, and we have high and lofty, majestic conceptions of the God we worship and serve, but it's to recognize that that God of majesty and might and glory is also a God who humbles himself. In the incarnation and humbles himself because he dwells with us and delights that we should dwell with him. Look at chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Again, that language of high and lifted up is used again. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I'm so high and holy and lofty and, exalt, lofty and exalted, I want nothing to do with the wretched, miserable sinners of the earth. Well, you we might think that this God of majesty might well just cast us off and reject us, but no, no. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Folks, we need a vision of a majestic God. We need a vision of a majestic God who's accessible. Of a majestic God who communes with us, who invites us into relationship with Himself, invites us to come to dwell with Him where He dwells. That's what temples and tabernacles are all about. It's God's meeting place with His creatures. It's God drawing near in His house to make His dwelling in our midst. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I will be in their midst. He dwells with us. He's made His church to be the habitation of God through the Spirit. And so, as there are creatures in His presence who are awestruck with the glory of this God, His majesty, and as Isaiah himself is struck with the reality of his own sinfulness, it's also in this place that we see that God does not give us an overwhelming sense of His majesty to cripple us. It's not that God is so majestic and so glorious and so wonderful that we think ourselves to be nothing but little insects. He puts value upon us. He made us for Himself. He made us that we might commune with Him, that we might know Him, that we might draw near to Him. He didn't make us because He needs us. He made us because we are the ones in need of Him. And He delights to extend to us His love. And He delights to extend to us His grace and His fellowship and His presence. The anthem of the seraphim, these burning ones at the pres- around the throne, is to declare of this high and lofty God. He is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The idea of holiness is not so much the idea of ethical right and wrong or good and evil. Um, it's really the expression of God being unlike anything that exists in the world. He's singular. He's alone. Nothing's like him. Isaiah's going to say later on in the book, what were you liken unto God? What do you need to compare with God? He's incomparable. Nothing like him. And you know, when we're in the presence of something that's so, so unlike us, we feel creepy, don't we? I mean, if I saw a bug in this building that's nothing like I've ever seen before, I can deal with the spiders. I can deal with the other insects I see in this building all the time. But you put in here something strange, something that I've never seen before. I'm creeped out. I feel gooseful. I show all over. What am I going to do? I don't know what this bug does. Does it fly? Does it bite? Does it sting? I don't have a clue. I'm, I'm filled with fear. And we would feel that way in the presence of God. But it's always interesting. What God does is He comes to us and says, Fear not. He comes to us as He does with Isaiah, not intending to crush Him, but tending to cleanse Him, to heal Him, to forgive Him, to restore Him to His presence and to His fellowship. That's what we see going on here. We see God's mercy as well as His majesty. His mercy shines forth in the fact that He sends one of these burning ones 
who has a hand, in his hand a, a burning coal he's taken with the tongues from the altar now we, we can argue what altar is it we had two altars in the tabernacle in the temple you had the altar burnt offering that was outside the tent the altar burnt offering was in the courtyard we're, in, we're inside now we're in the presence of God and, and the closest altar to his presence was the altar of incense the altar of incense and the altar of incense interestingly enough it provided a cloud of protection when the high priest went in on the Yom Kippur the day of atonement and went into the presence of God and there was that cloud of protection kind of like what Moses had on Mount Sinai when Moses was enveloped in a cloud when he was in the presence of God or God enveloped himself in a cloud there was a cloud of protection that kept him from the majesty of God breaking forth upon him and there's something of a, a place of, of, of um, God's protection, of a God of good intention, a God of good ill, good of, of, of um, goodwill, not looking to crush the man, this poor man in the presence of the living God, filled with terror. Woe is me! I am undone. God says, "I've come to cleanse you. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin." atoned for that's part of who our God is this God of mercy this God who delights in forgiveness who delights to cleanse us and restore us and renew us years ago I heard when I first began to read the Bible's teaching about divine sovereignty the majesty of God the ways of God with his world and uh, I remember very, being very impressed by this uh, event, uh, this uh, testimony of a missionary. And the missionary said, if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I would have been long ago a missionary dropout. He would have just been washed out and left the field. But it's because he felt he, like Isaiah, had a vision of majesty. That that was the thing that kept him in the work. We need a vision of majesty, the majesty of God. And it will sustain us, it will uphold us. But also, we need to also see the mercy of this God. We need to see the reality of His saving love. That He pardons our guilt. He takes away our iniquity. You think of the way in which God revealed Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai when He passed by Him put him in the cleft of the rock and let him see his back parts as it says and we read that the Lord the Lord is his name merciful and gracious slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth forgiving iniquity transgression and sin there's like six statements of mercy Six statements of the goodness of God before he gets to judgment. Will no wise clear the guilty? It's going to no wise clear the guilty. That's true. But you see, that's not what God emphasizes when he reveals himself to Moses. That's not the final part of the vision. That's not the only thing. The takeaway is his mercy. The merciful God, I'm sorry, the majestic God is merciful. We need to console our hearts with that reality. God takes forgiven sinners into the very court of His presence. 
to stand in the council of the heavenly beings who wait for God's orders. And you see, that's the picture we see with reference to the mission. And a lot of times we like to find Trinity in the Old Testament in places where Trinity is not to be found. I'm going to tell you, the two places in Isaiah 6, people see Trinity. Trinity really isn't. The first is the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. People think as if what's happening here is that the seraphim are saying, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Holy Spirit. But the reality is that there's a threefold repetition of lots of things in the Old Testament. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 7. There's a number of these things in which the same thing is repeated three times. And it's usually repeated three times for the sake of emphasis. For the sake of drawing your attention to that reality. That this reality is central, is crucial, must be seen. We must see this holy God. And not just see Him holy and then turn your head away, but holy, holy, holy. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. So it's emphasizing the holiness of God. And then the fact that there's this plurality in the message of verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So God's doing sending, but there's also one who will go for us. The plural is is there. And you you see that in creation. Um, God created man after his own image, after his own likeness. there's a portal there as well. It's not coming to me exactly how that's framed, but you know that there is that portal there. But the plurality of God's speech in the Old Testament is not that the Father and Son and the Spirit are having this inter-Trinitarian dialogue between one another. It's the fact that God's in the presence of these angelic beings. And it's in the presence of these angelic beings, he's saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? He also is speaking of the heavenly council room. And how do I know that? Just read 1 Kings chapter 22. That explains it all. That explains it all. You have the picture there of a heavenly throne room scene just like we have here. And we have God saying, who will go to take care of the problem I have with this King Ahab? And one of the angels say, I will go and I will put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. It's God's messengers at work, folks. The, people, the, the beings that stand in close proximity to God's presence awaiting his orders. You know, Jesus said, we're to pray. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Um, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, his orders are taken and, and, and obeyed completely. His will is done in heaven. And there are these heavenly beings there to do his will. There to do the bidding of the enthroned one. And so what we have here is Isaiah then admitted to the council room. He's there with the angels. He's there forgiven. He's there received. He's there blessed with the salvation of God. Blessed to hear the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah, having been freshly Forgiven, his guilt taken away, his sin atoned for, says, I'm the one to go on this mission. Here I am. Send me. 
it's great to have that kind of earnestness, that kind of willingness, that kind of desire to serve God. I'll go where you want me to go, O Lord, or mountain or hill or sea. I'll go where you want me to go, O Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. You know, it's easy to sing. It's a good song. It's easy to sing, but it's hard to do. You know, Isaiah has no clue what he's bargaining for. Because the mission is not a promising mission. Isaiah is instructed to say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And it's interesting. God doesn't say, just go say to the people, see, hear, and don't understand, see, and don't see. He says, keep on hearing. Keep on seeing. Seems like Isaiah has said something of history, a history of serving God. Of serving God in the midst of people that aren't hearing. People that aren't seeing. He's been a prophet already. The first five chapters are likely early prophecies that he gave to Israel. Not all of it, but probably some of it is. And the point that God's saying is, I'm going to send you on this mission to this people in which don't expect now that you've received this heavenly vision you're going to get a better response you might have a better attitude of heart in receiving their rejection but rejection's what you're going to get you're not going to get a willing and responsive people and not only that not only keep on hearing and keep on uh, seeing but don't understand and don't perceive he says positively Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You say, wait a minute, isn't that what God wants? Doesn't he want them to see and to hear and to understand and turn? Well, obviously not with this group. Again, I can't explain the inscrutable ways of God in His providence and His sovereign ways with the world. But I know this group of people that Isaiah is ministering to are people that have no interest in the things that Isaiah has to say to them. And you know primarily why? It's because they are given over to idolatry. Look over in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Hear these words. Verse 6. For you have rejected your people. It's gotten that far down the road with God's relationship with this people that he, now he's rejected them. You've rejected your people, the house of Israel, because they're filled with things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. That's the people to the west. So you have people to the east, people to the west. Instead of Israel being the light of God to the nations, instead of Israel being the ones who fulfill the Abrahamic blessing. Through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. They're being molded and shaped and influenced by the nations around them. The people to the east, the people to the west. And then they're making alliances, they're striking hands, there's alliances there, with the children of foreigners. Then God says their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. That's materialism. The land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. That's militarism. They got their standing armies ready to go. The land is filled with idols. They bend down to the work of their hands that their own fingers have made. That's the problem. They're idolaters. And it's not just the idols that they make with their own hands, although that's 
big part of it. But it's also they've made idols of their military power or their alliances with other military powers. They made idols of things, silver and gold. They're materialists. They're greedy. Paul says greed is idolatry. And you know what happens when we begin to worship idols? Psalm 115 tells us what happens. We become like the things we worship. And Psalm 15 expresses what an idol is. An idol is a thing that people make and they give them eyes. But Psalm 115 says they don't see. The idols have eyes, but they don't see. They put little ears on the idol. But they have ears, but they don't hear. They have feet, but they can't walk. They have hands, but they can't act. They're dead, lifeless entities, have no power to do anything to hurt or to heal. They can't help you, they can't hurt you. They're nothings, they're vanities. That's what the meaning of an idol is. It's a nothing. That's contrasted with our gods in the heavens. He's done whatever he pleases. The earth is filled with his works. God's God's the God of who's living. Not dead. These idols are dead. And here's the point of it all. When you worship those dead idols, you become like them. I told you this before. I'll just repeat it. I went up to Newport's to teach a Bible class or class uh, for Adam. And uh, he was away with some other thing he had to do. And uh, one guy walks in and he has a leather jacket. He has the jeans. He has the hair all slicked back in a pompadour. He has this kind of bearing and walk about him. And uh, I'm beginning to pick up on this. And I go up to Matford and I said, uh, you like James Dean. And most, some of you don't know who James Dean was. He was an actor back in the 1950s. He made three movies and then he died in a car crash. But a lot of people still, you'll see pictures sometimes on James Dean. Go and go and Google it. You'll see the pictures of James Dean with the, with the leather jacket and the hair all slicked back. Just like this guy was. He looked at me and he said, How'd you know? My room's filled with pictures of James Dean. They that worship them shall be like them. You emulate, you emulate the thing you admire. You admire, as I grew up with the Mickey Mantle swing, I never hit a ball like him anywhere near, but you try to swing like him. Ron Marischal, picture, picture that threw his leg all the way up in the air. People wanted to be like him, and so they, they imitate him. That's what we do. We're imitative creatures, folks. We either imitate God as beloved children, or we'll find idols whom we will we will imitate. And so this faculty loss is because they're worshipping entities that don't have faculties that see, hear, feel, or do. And they become like them. Isaiah's response is not, oh why Lord or find somebody else. It's simply how long? How long? How long, oh Lord? That's oftentimes what you see in the Psalms. The Psalm writers under affliction and trouble sometimes never say why Lord? That's not there. But they say, how long, Lord? How long? How long will this set of circumstances continue? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land's a desolate waste. It's not good news. Isaiah, you're in this for the long haul, and the long haul is destruction. The long haul is ultimately 
the northern kingdom is going to be taken away by the, by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom by the Babylonians in 586-87. They're going to be taken away. Isaiah is long gone at that point. But still, the future for the people of Israel is not a good one. It's not a good one. But yet there's hope, even here. And that's in that stump that remains. When the tree is felled, the holy seed is in the stump. There's a holy seed. Remember what Isaiah, what God said to Elijah, I have 7,000. You didn't know about it, but I know about it. I have 7,000 faithful ones that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says, even at this present time, you might not see it, but, but God knows who they are. And God will bring that remnant to himself. And through that remnant, God's people will thrive and flourish and prosper. May not be in our time. We may be long past from the scene. But that doesn't mean the kingdom of Jesus fails. Simply doesn't mean the kingdom fails. Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Isaiah lived in very difficult times. Faithful ministry did not meet with um, tremendously positive responses. And yet Isaiah could labor in hope. Because the hope ultimately meets us in chapter 7 when the Emmanuel section of Isaiah begins and the promise of the coming of the child that's born of the son that's given upon whom shoulder will rest the government and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, brethren, my time's short. I have some final takeaways. Just this. Number one, as we consider this passage, isn't it good to know who occupies the throne of the universe? Who really occupies the throne of the universe? It's not men. It's not political parties. It's not theorists with their great sense of knowledge and understanding all the experts of the world is Jesus the enthroned one the one who ascended on high led captivity captive the one who was exalted to his father's throne far above all rule, principality and power in every name that's named not only in this age but also in that which is to come what a blessing it is to know who truly reigns Who's in the control tower working out all of his will and purposes that are purposes of good, purposes of blessing, purposes that we can trust and rely on. To rejoice at his full capacity and capability to exercise his office as the Lord of the universe, to trust him and not in man. Not to trust in princes or in material wealth or military might or in alliances with enemies but to trust in Him and to trust in Him exclusively. And then the revelation of the majesty and mercy of God has an end in the life of Isaiah and should for us. What does it mean that this majestic God shows His mercy in Jesus? It means that we may approach Him. It means that He has made all the conditions necessary for us to draw near to the throne of grace. Having this great high priest, Hebrews says, who's passed into the heavens. That picture is passed into the heavens to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having purged our sins. He's sat down at the majesty of his father. 
For what end? Writer of the Hebrews says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to a throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Again, in and of ourselves, we're like Isaiah before the cleansing. We're unfit for his presence. We're lost. We're undone. We're wretched. We're miserable. We have no right to be here. And yet God in his grace comes through Christ to qualify us. To make us to be inheritors of the saints in light. To be fit for his presence and fit to draw near. Then finally, this fitness for worship, for service, for mission. It really does rest primarily in coming to be acquainted with the enthroned one. Again, Isaiah came away from that experience of the holiness of God, the majesty of God, never to forget it. His constant name for God throughout his book. It's it's not a common name. It's not found many times in the scriptures, but it's found in Isaiah again and again and again. Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. He never forgot God's holiness, but he also never forgot God's mercy. That the one who has ascended to the throne room of of the heavens does so to the end that he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. May God be pleased to give us a fresh sight of our Lord, a fresh sight of his majesty, of his mercy, and of the reality that his mission is something we're called to achieve and to pursue. Not by the things that our eyes see or that our ears hear, but by faith in his faithfulness, faith in his sustaining word. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can look at this passage of scripture perhaps in a new way, with new eyes. We pray that what we've seen would be blessed to our understanding as we come and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper. And so let's do that by singing together hymn number 177. And as I I usually tell us people, just to remind you, that when we sing the second stanza and come to the end, for some reason the Trinity hymnal is put in uh, a word that I don't think is found in most other um, places this hymn is found. Because uh, it says in the final stanza of, of uh, the second stanza, the wonders of redeeming love and my own worthlessness. Don't sing that. Don't sing that. Whatever we are as uh, sinners, we're not worthless. We're not worthless. And again, Jesus says you are more, you're, you're more worthy than many sparrows. Uh, we're not worthless. Unworthy is the proper term. So as we sing that into the second stanza, sing about the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. To me, that's far more biblical than what's in the hymnal. So let's remember that as we sing together hymn number 177.